Welcome to Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the nonprofit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Witsur. Noir City DC is already underway. The festival runs every day through October 26th at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in Silver Spring, Maryland. This upcoming Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, FNF President Eddie Muller will be at the theater to host all the festival screenings. That's right, three days, October 20th to 22nd, Czar of Noir Eddie Muller at Noir City DC. If you see Eddie in the lobby, stop and talk with him. Eddie's intros will include three double features. On Friday, October 20th, there's a Walter Matthau double bill with The Taking of Pelham 123 and Charlie Verrett. Saturday, October 21st, has Alain Delon in Any Number Can Win and Once a Thief. And on Sunday, October 22nd, as part of the Joan Fontaine Centennial, Ivy and Born to be Bad. Other big knockover heist films Eddie will host include Point Blank with Lee Marvin and Tushpa Grisby with the great Jean Gabin. For full details on Noir City DC and to buy tickets or passes, please visit the AFI Silver's website at afi.com silver. We are posting this tribute episode to Marsha Hunt on her 100th birthday. Her great career on screen in Hollywood included several classic noir films, and her decades of significant work off screen include prominent roles with international humanitarian organizations and as a leading figure in her community. She's also made several guest appearances at Noir City Film Festivals, and she's a member of the FNF's Advisory Council. Joining us now to discuss Marsha Hunt's extraordinary life and career is Alan K. Rohde, a charter director and treasurer of the Film Noir Foundation. Alan, thanks for joining us. Guy, it's my pleasure. Uh, always great to join you, uh, particularly today, to talk about one of my favorite human beings, Marsha Hunt. And there is a lot to cover in the amazing life and career, which just has so many different acts uh, and so many incredible well, things. Well, uh, Marsha will be celebrating her centennial on Earth this October 17th, 100 years of Marsha Hunt, and uh, my feelings about Marsha are, are very strong and very personal because uh, I, feel, I feel very close to her as a friend, and uh, I don't think 100 years is long enough. I think she needs to just keep on going. <laughs> but um, for those who are not familiar with Marsha, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to give a little background on her career. Sure. Um, she was born in Chicago, a century ago, but she grew up in New York. Her father was really kind of a scholar. I believe Marcia told me uh, when they relocated out here to Hollywood, he was an administrator with the Social Security Administration, and her mother was a voice coach. And uh, Marcia was a graduate of uh, Horace Mann School for Girls in New York City. She graduated in 1934 at the tender age of 16. She's uh, March is one of the smartest people I've ever met, and so it didn't surprise me that she went through uh, went through her uh, high school years rather rapidly. And uh, she wanted to study drama, but she ended up because her her looks uh, were so striking. She ended up as a model with the John Powers Model Agency, which was a very the modeling agency in New York at that time. And she ended up coming to Hollywood in 1935 and signing a seven-year contract with Paramount Pictures at the tender age of 17. Uh, Marsha made 12 different movies at Paramount. She did some loan outs. Um, uh, She made movies like Hollywood Boulevard with Robert Cummings. Uh, One of her loan outs was Born to the West at Republic with a young John Wayne and so forth. And then after that, she was under contract to uh, the Tiffany of Hollywood Studios at that time, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, uh, for quite a period, most of the 19, the balance of the 1940s. And uh, she was in some very, very prestigious pictures, uh, not quite a movie, st- uh, a big movie star, but much more than just a featured player. Uh, someone dubbed her the the youngest and best character actress in Hollywood, or, or words to that effect. But, I mean, some of her movies, Pride and Prejudice, Cry Havoc, uh, the movie None Shall Escape, which um, one of the very early anti-Nazi films, and an excellent film that um, hopefully Criterion will take up one day. Uh, some of her movies more toward the noir persuasion, 1942 Kid Glove Killer, which is a really fun movie that we've shown up at Noir City, uh, the directorial debut of the great Fred Zinneman. 
Um, of course, raw deal uh, that we've uh, uh, talked about that will be uh, shown on Eddie's uh, Noir, Noir Alley program on TCM. Uh, Mary Ryan Detective. And just a score of really, really fine movies. The Happy Time, uh, which is a great family movie. A Letter for Evie, a World War II movie directed by Jules Dassin, in which she co-starred with Hume Cronin. And uh, one of the, in a supporting role was Norman Lloyd, who is still with us, who uh, always enjoys the fact that he got to kiss Marcia in that movie. And he still kisses her whenever he sees her at a social occasion, which is kind of nice. And both of them are going to be past 100 years of age, and they're still going strong. So that's wonderful. So how did you first meet Marsha Hunt? And how did she then become involved with um, the Film Noir Foundation, as she has been for many years now? I thought it would be good if we could bring her to Noir City as a special guest. So I wrote her a letter. And she lives quite close to me here in the valley in Sherman Oaks, where she's lived in a, uh, a ranch house since 1946 uh, that she bought with her uh, late husband, Robert Presnell Jr., who is uh, quite a screenwriter. And so at any rate, Marcia wrote an affirmative letter back. I went and met with her. And then what happened was my wife, uh, Gemma, and I actually escorted her up to Noir City, and we kind of hung out with her. Um, you know, Marsha was, I think, 90, in her in her 90s at that point or close to it. So um, we just spent the, the days with her up at Noir City over a weekend, and we got very, very friendly with her. And then from there, um, uh, either the following year or the year after that, I invited Joan Leslie to come up because uh, we were going to show some of her films, and I decided to invite Marsha just to come with us and she did. We just became fast friends with Marsha. It was terrific. And Marsha became kind of a, a real part of the Film Noir Foundation. Uh, we, she became a member of the advisory board and so forth. And then, of course, uh, Eddie Castor in his uh, movie, The Grand Inquisitor, which is a funny story in and of itself, <laughs> because... <laughs> Eddie asked me to talk to Marsha about being in the movie, and I did. And, uh, you know, uh, it went from there, and it ended up where Eddie and I were over at her house shortly thereafter, and she was picking out wardrobe to wear out of her clothes, out of her closet, and we were looking at that and talking about the movie, and then I said, well, you know, I've got my old diver's knife from the Navy. We could use it as a murder weapon and all this other stuff. Uh, but it turned out really, really great for Marsha to be in the movie, and it really ripened the relationship between Eddie and her, and it was just a win-win. So um, Marsha's just a terrific uh, person, particularly when you get to know her beyond the films and you know you learn about her history of activism that really started with the blacklist period uh, in the uh, uh, around 1950 in Hollywood. She spoke some in a couple of the appearances she's made at subsequent Noir City festivals, also in Hollywood and with you in Palm Springs at the uh, Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival. She spoke about being part of the Hollywood's first attempt, the actor's first attempt to fight back against HUAC, um, just when the Blacklist era was starting in 1947, right? She was on the flight with that, that's, the Bogarts. That's correct. She was, uh, Marsha was a member of what was called the Committee of the First Amendment. And this was a group of artists that were very distressed with the red baiting and the charges of, of uh, disloyalty and, and uh, labeling people as communists in 1947. So, they actually, this group, which included John Houston, Lauren Bacall, Humphrey Bogart, Richard Conte, Evelyn Keyes, uh, many, many others. And I believe Marsh is the last survivor uh, of that group. Uh, Willie Wyler, the director, was another one. They chartered a flight, went to Washington to attend the hearings to make their voices heard. Uh, they, they, she also was a part of a radio broad, subsequent radio broadcast basically uh, the artists banding together to defend themselves. Uh, and Marsha always had a inquisitive mind and uh, wasn't afraid to speak it 
And one of the memories I have is um, some years ago, probably about eight years ago, um, I took Marsha to a screening of a documentary on Dalton Trumbell. Now, this was not the theatrical biography movie with Brian Cranston. This was a documentary that was uh, produced in large part by Chris Trumbo, uh, Dalton's son, who I was friendly with. And we went to see it, and I'm sitting there next to Marsha, and part of the documentary is actors like Karen Allen and Brian Dennehy actually reading Trumbo's letter, and then that's leaving with interviews and newsreel footage. So they showed the newsreel footage uh, of the hearings, and Marsha elbows me, and I look at the screen, and there she is sitting next to behind Lauren Bacall in Congress <laughs> uh, watching that. And one of the most poignant moments was when uh, there was a letter of Trumbo's being written about the producer, Adrian Scott, who produced Murder, My Sweet, and uh, other films. And he, he was blacklisted, and his career was completely destroyed. And there was something being written of him subsequently during the 1950s, uh, living in a house uh, bereft of furniture with a typewriter on a milk stand, one chair, and a picture of FDR on the wall, and he was grinding out scripts for the Robin Hood TV series under a pseudonym. And his wife, Ann Shirley, who had been a good friend of Marsha, was married to Scott. Their marriage had imploded. And it was just very, very sad. And in watching this, Marsha just kind of held her chest and let out this low moan. And I, it was very emotional. And I grabbed her hand and I said, "You are, are you okay? And she said, it's just difficult to relive this. He said, she, and she said, you know, one of the reasons that I got involved with a lot of this is that Adrian Scott was one of the finest men I ever met. And I knew that if Adrian was for something, it had to be the right thing to do. Um, and it was a, a very poignant moment. But what happened with Marcia is, is that she was uh, blacklisted in 1950 when that scurrilous document uh, composed by uh, an ex-FBI agent and like-minded people came out listing all of these people in the supposedly subversive organizations that they joined uh, or petitions they signed. They didn't make any charges so they couldn't get sued. They just made a list of people and they signed this and they joined. They were part of the committee of the First Amendment and this type of business. And that was taken up by people in Hollywood like Cecil B. DeMille and other right-wing people and used as a litmus test for casting. So, therefore, Marsha's career really dried up. And, in fact, when she was cast in the, the movie The Happy Time uh, by Richard Fleischer, she actually had to, they tried to get her to sign a, a loyalty oath, which had all of these words in it and descriptions of other people and something that she refused to sign. So she wrote out her own loyalty oath, uh, so to speak, which only spoke to her feelings about uh, things uh, that was, uh, you know, not naming names or uh, carrying on or red baiting. And she was able to be in that movie, but after that, her career really dried up uh, as far as making movies in Hollywood. In fact, uh, at MGM, she was let go in MGM, I believe, either 46 or 47. And Marsha always suspected that uh, the actor George Murphy, who subsequently became a Republican senator for the state of California, uh, he and others, she felt, were responsible for not having uh, MGM renew her contract. Uh, so it was a very, very evil time with uh, Hollywood and Washington, basically. It was, it was like a snake trying to swallow its own tail. See, the, the headlines are scaring Americans to death that maybe it wasn't safe to go to the movies anymore. Their loyalty might be subverted by hidden communist propaganda tucked away in the dialogue. And this is such nonsense that it had to be answered. Uh, but what I admire about Marcia is that she really moved on to uh, a career in 
community activism and activism working with the United Nations in traveling uh, and in um, her own habit of self-awareness, she became aware of hunger throughout the world. And beginning in the mid-50s, she got deeply involved in the United Nations, which was a much different organization (laughs) in the 1950s than it is in 2017. Uh, and she got deeply, this was when Ralph Bunch, um, uh, was, was, uh, I, I believe Ralph Bunch was the head of, Dr. Bunch was the head of the UN at that time. And she got very, very involved in working to alleviate world hunger. And this also led to her, uh, later activism in her hometown of Sherman Oaks here in the San Fernando Valley, where she was later named the honorary mayor and did a lot of work to alleviate uh, the homeless problem when it first reared its ugly head in the 1970s and the 1980s. So Marcia is, uh, you know, when you walk, when I first walked into Marcia's house and I looked around at pictures and other things, there's this picture of Marcia, Robert Taylor, Mitzi Green, other actors standing there with Eleanor Roosevelt. And there's letters from Jimmy Carter, uh, all of these things where this is someone who has lived a fulsome life dedicated to helping others, not just some movie person that is completely self-absorbed. Um, I always said when you spend time with Marsha, and we used to go out to dinner with her at this uh, Indian restaurant in North Hollywood that she she had a preference for, and when she would come in there, they would... Uh, they would treat her like the queen that she is. And we always enjoyed those uh, evenings together. But when you spent time with Marsha, you always left feeling inspired. Like I always said, I wanted to, after I spent an evening with Marsha, I wanted to go out and end world hunger, (laughs) do something because she's just such a inspirational person. You mentioned in one of her appearances, I think, that her home, as you mentioned, that she's been in for many years, going back to the 1940s, she also opened it as a, a sort of salon, uh, if you will, for other people in the uh, entertainment community. Absolutely. And and when you go there now, it kind of gives you a flavor of Sunset Boulevard, not that, not that Marsha is in any way... Uh, resembles Gloria Swanson in that movie, but the tennis courts now are, you know, it's that house has been there since 1946. But in the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, into the early 80s, it was a salon uh, with people like Alfred Drake, Bernard Herman, um, my good friend uh, Dick and Sharon Erdman, Dick Erdman, the character actor who is still with us. And all of these people that would just hang out on the weekend, play tennis, and sit around and talk about politics, the events of the day, and so forth. And um, uh, it was really a special place. And I'd been to a couple parties at Marsh's backyard with, um, you know, some of the people from the old days, most of which uh, sadly have passed on, and just sitting there under the trees, uh, with a drink, some refreshment and something and sitting around and talking and uh, having a intellectual conversation without yelling or uh, any of this is just really, really special. In fact, one of the things is Marcia told me when she went back east to do a play at one point, she rented her house out to Jack Palance, the actor. Uh, and she said when she came back, Palance became insistent that he wanted to buy her house from her and kind of, you know, he did the Palance, Marsha, I really want this house. (laughs) And she finally said, uh, Jack, uh, no. Uh, but many years later, uh, she ran into Jack Palance's daughter, Holly, and they greeted each other. And when they discovered who they were or whatever, this was at some screening or some social event, and Holly Plant said, I have you know, Marsha, that I was conceived in your house. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Marsha's uh, uh, house is, um, Marsha's the type of person that made life her family and her home. 
and when you when you spend time with her, you she does make you feel that way. She really does. And the connections that she represents directly with old Hollywood are very powerful. And when you watch her talking about it, um, everyone can go see her some video from her appearances at the Noir City Festivals on the Film Noir Foundation website under the videos tab. There's three appearances of her on there in 2007, Noir City, San Francisco, and then 2012, Noir City, Hollywood, and uh, 2013 at the Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival in Palm Springs. And at one of those screenings in 2012, North City Hollywood, which was for Mary Ryan Detective, as you mentioned, uh, I was at that screening, and you can see the video there. The most powerful thing for me of that, of that screening that I remember is she was talking about being at the Egyptian Theater at that time in the year 2012, I think it was. And she said, can I just tell you about being in this theater before? And she talked about visiting Los Angeles with her family when she was a young girl, only 11 years old. And they took her to the Egyptian theater, that very same theater that had uh, just opened a few years before. So it was incredible to hear this connection being oh, made yeah, this that's, person. Uh, Extraordinary. Uh, yeah, it, it, she is a walking... Uh, she is a walking like the uh, griot of Hollywood history that is just phenomenal. In fact, that specific vacation, her parents took her out to Catalina Island. And I believe this was 19, 1927, 1928. And she talked about swimming in the ocean off of Catalina. And you're right, going to the Egyptian theater, which I believe opened in 1922. So it had been open like five years or something like that. And it's just phenomenal. And the thing about Marsha is is the stories are often new, no matter how many times, uh, how, many, how many hours I've spent with her. Um, I remember she said when she first, her, one of her first photo sessions uh, in Hollywood was with Peter Lorre in the back of his house, for some reason, uh, and, and talked about Peter Lorre. And then one time, uh, we were at dinner, and for some reason, the topic was Orson Welles, and she said, oh, Alan, did I tell you about the time when Orson and I went to see Eartha Kitt in London do her nightclub act? <laughs> and I go, no, you haven't, but I'd like to hear it. <laughs> and of course I did. So uh, there's there's many of these vignettes where these were the people in Marsha's orbit, uh, either personally, professionally, or both. Uh, for a lot of reasons, and uh, when you sit and you listen to these stories uh, so many years later, it's just really, really spellbound. And in fact, uh, the documentary on her life, uh, which uh, was uh, produced by Roger Memos, uh, we went to a screening of it, an advanced screening of it. I went to Paramount and introduced it with Marsha which was a great privilege. And then it was, uh, I believe it was formally premiered at the Burbank Film Festival a couple years ago, and Eddie and I were in attendance, and of course uh, she got a standing ovation. But it's really a detailed chronicle of, um, of Marsha's whole life, which is, uh, I, I think Marsha's life is really a tribute to, without getting too uh, melodramatically overwrought here, I think it's really a tribute to the human spirit and to someone that wants to do stuff for people out of a genuine desire to do it, not because they want a bunch of I love you, do-gooder awards on their wall or people to pat them on the back and everything, because she simply felt that it was the right thing to do. Uh, and the same thing with the blacklist and speaking up uh, as a member of the committee of the, of the First Amendment and all that, it was just about uh, being the right thing to do. I found something pretty interesting. I was doing some research uh, last week on the strike at 1946 outside the gates of Warner Brothers with the between the Conference of Studio Unions and the studios, specifically Warner Brothers and the IATSE, which is the International Alliance of Stagehands, uh, that was basically dominated by gangsters, and then that passed to uh, 
a, a lot of right wingers, uh, and uh, Marsha was actually there when there was this violent upheaval outside the gates of of Warner Brothers with uh, Union scabs and Burbank police and Warner security personnel beating up the strikers, uh, cars being overturned, and so forth. And Marsha went down there so she could see for her own self what exactly was going on. And I came across this telegram that a bunch of actors sent to Jack Warner saying, we are going to be there to watch how your studio treats members of a valid labor unit. And it was signed by all these people. And, of course, Marsha's Hunt's name was on this telegram, which I thought was really, really, um, uh, that was typically Marsha. <laughs> Uh, she had to. De- Marsha had to deal with these, this whole male-dominated uh, Hollywood, and, and if you think it's male-dominated, white male-dominated now, uh, you should have seen how it was in the 1940s. And uh, uh, the Screen Actors Guild, she would always speak up, and it seemed. She told me it seemed to uh, seemed to perplex people like uh, you know Robert Montgomery and George Murphy and. Reagan and Leon Ames and people like that, where they, they kind of stifled heaving aside because uh, Marsha believed in asking questions and pointing out that what was going on with uh, the, the strikes, uh, with the union movement being suppressed in Hollywood, and then, of course, the blacklist that she got caught up with was, was, uh, was wrong. And uh, no one has ever stopped Marsha from speaking up. And yet her demeanor and how she handles herself uh, is nothing ever. It's never been anything less than classy. Uh, So she stood up for what was right during a time when it was deemed not appropriate for any woman to do that, and particularly somebody in Hollywood, but she always did it and never lost any of her manners and her class. And, and I admire that very much. And I think probably one reason I'm kept busy at this ripe age of mine is that I'm one of very few survivors now of that well-known golden age. And there aren't too many of us left who can recall being there and having worked with the legendary people and having known them. And so while I last and while a few of us do, we're kept busy recalling it for people who treasure And I do believe it was the golden age. She also told me about uh, making, uh, appearing in the movie Carnegie Hall, which was directed by the B-movie auteur Edgar G. Ulmer. And Marcia said the first day on the set, he was screaming and yelling and carrying on and berating people. And she just said, I'm not going to put up with this and went to her dressing room and went there. And then, and, uh, Ulmer came and said, what's the matter? And she said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to perform in this movie if you're going to behave that way. And Ulmer was genuinely nonplussed, like, well, what do you mean? I've always been this way. <laughs> Don't take it personally, you know. <laughs> but this was how Ulmer operated and how they operated at MGM were two entirely different universes. <laughs> Marsha wasn't, well, wasn't quite used to that, but uh, apparently they worked it out and the, the movie was made. And it's, uh, in its own way, it's very interesting she was very fond of Van Heflin, and uh, I remember uh, watching uh, Kid Glove Killer with her. There was some fight scene or something, and Marsha leaned over to me and said uh, they had to be they had to do a retake on this when Van and Lee Bowman's um, toupees both came off during the fight scene, <laughs> and they had to do a retake. And then uh, I remember watching The Prowler with her which uh, for those of our listening audience who haven't seen The Prowler in 1950 with uh, Van Heflin, uh, one of the more perverse movies made during the, perverse film noirs made during the post-war period. And Van Heflin plays this really uh, despicable 
uh, person in the movie. And when the lights came on, I turned to Marcia and I said, well, what did you think about that? She said, well, I didn't really think Van was capable of playing a part like that. <laughs> so I, I, I'd been to the movies with Marcia many times and, even as her sight, you know, her, her eyes are, are really gone at this point, sadly. But even when her eyes were gone, the thing that I admired and really appreciated about her is, you know, I could see myself if I went to the movie and I couldn't see anything, maybe I wouldn't go or maybe I'd complain about it or say I couldn't see and, you know, uh, kind of a normal human reaction. Marcia never reacted that way. Uh, uh, I remember seeing the, we were watching the locket together and there was a two shot and she said, is Mitchum the guy on the right or the left? And I said, he's on the right. I, she said, good, good. I can follow the rest. Wow. You know, um, I, I remember we went to a screening, uh, well before that at the Academy of the big country. And if you're, this was when the big country was redone and the big screen at the Academy theater and the opening is stunning where it takes a long shot of a stagecoach riding across the prairie and then zooms in on it. And Marcia said, boy, what a shot that was. There was nobody better than Willie Wyler, you know? So just, uh, sharing those experiences with her, and just being around her, as I mentioned, was, was, has really been, uh, a pleasure and her, her friendship and, um, uh, the relationship that, uh, I've gotten to share with her has really been a, a significant high point in my life. Yeah, that's wonderful. And really for anyone who's seen her at any of the festivals, certainly in person, you get that sense very much of just what a extraordinary person overall she is, how well-rounded and intelligent and uh, sensitive and interested in other people. And you can see those on the Film Noir Foundation website, as I mentioned in the videos. Are well Absolutely. Watched. And the other thing is, is Marsha is the most well-coordinated person in terms of how she dresses. Uh, her book, uh, The Way We Wore, and uh, for for our... Hollywood history aficionados there. Uh, Marsha's book is still available. It's a beautiful table book about fashion in the movies. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful book, and she self-published it. And that whole story was a odyssey in itself of getting her book published. Uh, but uh, when you would go someplace with Marsha, the purse, the skirt, everything was so color-coordinated. And I remembered... I remember now before she went up to uh, Noir City for the first time and was going to sit down on stage with Eddie doing the interview, she said, you have to tell me, Alan, what is the color of the curtain in the Castro Theater <laughs> so I can dress appropriately? And her appearance there, the first one at Noir City in San Francisco, was such a hit. There was stuff on the internet from some of the attendees in San Francisco that, that went and saw her, and her appearance was so positively overwhelming. There was someone wanted her to run for mayor of San Francisco <laughs> and put something online for it. I mean, that was, uh, that was the effect uh, that, that Marsha had on an audience and just how uh, fantastic she is uh, with with people and uh, just just really fantastic. Another good memory was uh, having uh, my wife Gemma fly up with uh, Marsha and Joan Leslie and sitting with them, listening to them trade stories back and forth about MGM and Warner Brothers and Cagney and this person and that person and their lives and their careers. And, uh, you know, uh, again, I'm repeating myself, but every time you spend time with Marsha, it's, uh, it always felt like me to be, um, uh, to paraphrase Lou Gehrig. I felt like the luckiest guy on the face of the earth. <laughs> right. 
And the the San Francisco appearance you mentioned is 2007 with uh, Raw Deal and Kid Glove Killer at the Castro Theater. Okay. For me, yeah. for me, for me personally, I will say that is the first year that I attended any of the Noir City festivals, and that was the opening night mm-hmm. of that festival. So for me, it was the first of now many, many hundreds of screenings I've been to at these great festivals, and that was uh, a very good way to start with Marsha. Uh, oh yeah, on stage. I, one of Can't one of the that. pictures. Yeah, uh, one of the one of the movies that we showed, I believe, in 2012 at the Egyptian Theater, and then later I showed it at my festival in Palm Springs. Was um, they were going to Columbia was going to star Marsha in a detective series uh, similar to uh, The Whistler and um, The Crime Doctor, and and Columbia was big on these these rather. Uh, second feature uh, series and it was going to be Mary Ryan detective. And of course the blacklist derailed that they only made one film, but it's quite a lively film. And thanks to the film war foundations and Eddie's connections, uh, we were able to get a print of that from Sony. Uh, thanks to the great Grover crisp, who is the archive head uh, VP of archive, the archive there. And we showed that, and we had a lot of fun showing that and um, uh, sitting there watching it with Marsha. They have a scene where she's, like, actually extracting a bullet from some guy's arm who's wounded. <laughs> and she's an undercover detective doing ad hoc surgery, and she, she made some comment to me. You know, fortunately, they didn't give me a pair of pliers to do that <laughs> to the actor. But... Uh, it's uh, that that picture is a lot of fun and um, uh, really really terrific. Great yeah. times. That was a great role for her, a character where she could basically do anything undercover. Oh yeah, she, she was she could she could uh, yeah she could do she could really do really do anything on screen. She could do comedy. She could do drama. Uh, you know, um, smash up a story of a, wo- a woman. Marsha always said fans would come up to her and say, what did it feel like when you and Susan Hayward got into a fight and she pulled your hair and smash up? And she said, I always tell them that it hurt. (laughs) 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 Uh, But uh, uh, Marsha's one in a million and it's just, it's, it's gratifying uh, to, uh, to be celebrating uh, her centennial. And even as the blacklist began to dry up, uh, she started appearing more and more on television uh, into the 1980s on different series shows. And I remember uh, sitting at home watching a rerun of the original Outer Limits from 1964. And uh, there's a uh, her her husband in the in the show is played by actor Phil Abbott. And he's doing experiments with bees, and there's this woman that turns into a bee, and Marsha is like being chased by all these bees and being stung to death. <laughs> and so I got so concerned, I called her up. I said, "Do you remember this show?" <laughs> and she said, "Yes, I do." And it's a very somber memory because they were filming this in November of 1963. And in the middle of the shooting, they got the word that JFK had been assassinated. And Marcia told me they just suspended shooting uh, for the day as everyone was in a state of shock uh, uh, about that. But uh, if you look at if you look at her credits um, uh, there, she kept working. She did a lot of TV. I I recently got a DVD of the show, uh, the episodic show that was on the 1970s. That was a very good police show called Police Story that Joe Wombau was involved and I'm sitting there watching one of these episodes and they have to go see a police psychiatrist. Well, who's the psychiatrist, but Marsha <laughs> sitting behind, sitting behind the desk. So, um, she, she has done the body of her work, uh, is amazing both on the large and the small screens. Acting is a wonderful pursuit and I'm so grateful that I had such a full meal of it before it ended, and then uh, another life was time for that, and I've enjoyed that just as richly. 
Um, I think I think the the celebration of Marsha's centennial, the the screening of Raw Deal on Noir Alley is a tremendous thing. But uh, as Marsha always likes to remind people, or has reminded me on several occasions, uh, there's much more to her career than Raw Deal and the fascination with film noir. Although she loved making the movie, uh, there's much much more to Marsha, and I think. In the times that we're dealing with now, with some of the things that are going on politically, internationally, I think a look back on Marsha's life and her career, both on the screen and elsewhere, uh, really serves as a reminder on how to stand up for things that are right, regardless of the short, uh, some of the short-term implications of that. And Marsha paid the price for doing the right thing. But in the end, uh, uh, the causes that she represented and the goodness uh, that is part of her uh, really, ra- really rings true. And I'm just delighted, uh, Haggai, that you had me on here to talk about Marsha as she approaches her centennial. So thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks very much for joining us, Alan. This was great. A lot of great behind-the-scenes details on um, an extraordinary person who's lived an extraordinary life and will hopefully be with us for, uh, for many, many years longer. Absolutely. We are joined now by Film Noir Foundation President Eddie Muller. Ten years ago, he added his name to a list of filmmakers whose ranks include major classic Hollywood figures such as Fred Zinneman, Frank Borzaghi, Anthony Mann, and Jules Dassin. Membership in that exclusive club belongs to people who have directed an on-screen performance by Marsha Hunt. In Eddie's case, it was the production of a short film he wrote and directed called The Grand Inquisitor. So, Eddie, as we salute Marsha on her 100th birthday, how did that project come about, and how did she become involved? <laughs> Boy, you really just took me back there with that that introduction. That's like, uh, yeah, you're putting me in very rarefied company <laughs> where I don't I don't deserve to be. But thanks so much for that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, it came about because I was uh, asked to contribute a short story to a uh, an anthology called A Hell of a Woman. Uh, that Megan Abbott was editing, um, and and I was very pleased to be one of the few uh, male contributors to that collection, uh, and they were noir stories with female protagonists. So I wrote this story, and um, you know I, I was I was very pleased with the way it turned out, and some of my uh, friends and colleagues, when when Marcia appeared at the Noir City Film Festival. In San Francisco, uh, there it was kind of there was a synchronicity there because I had just finished the story and I'd showed it to some people, and they said, you know, you should you should do this as a film. You should ask Marcia to do it. I, honestly, it wasn't my idea. Uh, it was other people who'd read the story and then saw how great Marcia was and how how vibrant she still was. Um, you know, at I guess she was. Uh, 90 at that point you know and and that's really how it came about so i i sent the um i turned it into a screenplay from the short story and uh sent it to marcia and said you know i i if you wanted to do this i would i would do it i really had no plans to make it into a film without her involvement and she read it and had some <laughs> a few slight reservations about it uh and but we talked it through. I paid her a visit at her house down in Sherman Oaks, and we uh, we talked about it. And then she signed on, and and that's how that's how that happened. So it's definitely a very dark story. So did you have any reservations of like what was she going to think about you sending it to her and like oh, um, this part? Or yes, I mean if people <laughs> are are listening to this and they are unfamiliar with the story or they haven't seen the film version of it yeah it does it goes in unexpected directions and gets a little dark and it 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 has some things in it that were would certainly not have appeared on screen during marsh's prime let's put it that way (laughs) and um but honestly having 
gotten to know Marsha and realized how incredibly intelligent she is, honestly, I had very few reservations about showing it to her. I, I thought, you know, she, she might say, oh, I don't know, I don't think so. But honestly, she read it and she, she really, really liked the character that she was going to play. And like a true actress, she said, this is a too good an opportunity to pass up, you know. Now, I, I will say, and I, I don't, it, it's, it's kind of tough for me to talk about this because as a writer and a filmmaker, I don't want to spoil anything for people, right? <laughs> but there are, um, it was interesting in talking to her and convincing her that it would all turn out okay uh, and that there were things in it she didn't have to worry about how they might be construed on screen. Uh, I did go to her house and and this was kind of an amazing experience. She and I enacted the entire thing. You're right. It's just a two-character thing. And so I essentially played the part of the young woman who comes calling on her at the house and Marsha and we just did it we like a like a cold read and then when when it got to the end where things get a little weird you know she said well let's block this out so I can get a feel for how this is going to actually how I will feel doing this and we did that and uh and and then when it was all over and done she said okay I'm, I'm good I see what I see what your intent is here and I, I think this can really be something special. So let's just let's just do this. <laughs> right. And so, um, what was it like, or the circumstances of getting her on set and working with her during the production? Well, it, it couldn't have. Been, it was the greatest experience of my life. That's what it was. And uh, I can share a couple of funny stories about that. Number one, of course, is. I had to, because Marsha is a member of the Screen Actors Guild, <laughs> a member of the Screen Actors Guild. She's a charter member of the Screen Actors <laughs> Original, Guild. Original, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it. there's a thing now with, uh, you know, filmmakers. If you're an independent filmmaker, you're making a low-budget film or something, the Screen Actors Guild will... Uh, give you a waiver to use professional actors in the guild at a reduced rate and you know all this kind of stuff uh which is fine marcia kind of learned about that mm -hmm. on this production and the, the the guild really um is careful about its older members being exploited right so it was really interesting that i had to go through the the local uh, office of the guild here in San Francisco and explain to them what I was going to be doing and talk about Marsha and how she was going to be paid. Um, and then there was a representative who came to observe on the set to make sure we weren't violating union rules. And <laughs> what was so great about this was that I explained to Marsha what was happening, and she totally understood that we were making this film like, you know, commando filmmakers, right? She she gets there's a new way of doing things, right? And so we had, in order to get this all done, we had to shoot in, in like three really intense days all day long. And, of course, the, the union is not going to allow that. You know, you, you can only work a certain number of hours a day and all this. And so Marcia just totally played along. And, and she loved it. It was like, you know, at 5 o'clock when it was time to stop, she, she gets her stuff together and she makes a big show to the union rep about, about leaving and, like, and, and who's driving me back to my hotel? And then when the union rep was satisfied, you know, the car drives around the block and Marsha comes back and goes, okay, let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and she would work till like, 10, 11 o'clock at night, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I have to say, Marsha had more energy than anybody anybody on the set and it was really you know it, it, we shot the whole thing in the house and it was like, it was like my equivalent of shooting the texas chainsaw massacre <laughs> it was like really hot and it, and there were a lot of people in there and we had a smoke machine going off all the time because we wanted this haze of cigarette smoke because marsh is a chain smoker in the in the uh, film 
and uh, it was unpleasant to say the least. And and uh, at one point when we were shooting, I I said I want everybody to notice that the only person who is cool, calm, and collected and doesn't have a bead of sweat on them is the 90-year-old woman right here in the middle of all the lights and the setup. You know, she she was such a pro. It was uh, it was uncanny, really. <laughs> yeah, that all comes through in watching the short film it's um i mean and it's not the the story like we were mentioning is very dark um but she doesn't come across as being like well you know the first sometimes in movies like that or in stories like that the very first image of someone you say oh wow this person is really creepy and weird and something dark is going to happen but that doesn't come across really no in this film at all that thanks to her presence i think for sure um it's it's complex i really appreciated the complexity that that marcia's presence and her ability uh brought to the character and and when i wrote the piece um i mean there's there's suspense in the film like you don't know exactly where this woman is coming from or what's in that house with her you know i mean is there something else going on in the house and i just really appreciated that marcia made that character uh, a complete person, you know, you, and, and by the end of the film, um, you know, the whole purpose of it was to, um, make people think about how even people who might be involved in something in this case, you know, the, the question is this young woman, if you haven't seen it, it's about a young woman who believes that she's solved the mystery of the Zodiac killer and that she's actually tracked down his wife and and that's it so she comes to this person's house and and lays out this claim that i think your husband was the zodiac that's that's what the premise of the story is so uh marcia got everything there was to get out of that character let's just <laughs> let's just put it that way uh it, it was and and shooting that film with her was uh was a lesson in um composure and intelligence and instinct and uh, very interesting because she was playing opposite a young woman who had absolutely no on-camera experience at all. She had been in theater. She was really young. She'd done uh, theater in college, and uh, and I'd worked with her on a stage play in San Francisco before that, Leah Dash. Uh, and But it's in terms of shooting a film and the, the stopping and starting and you know maintaining your concentration and all that, it was a complete pro versus not versus, but a complete pro working with a neophyte, and uh, and it turned out great because that's what Marsha does. She makes everybody better. And we have a link in this podcast episode's notes to more information on the Grand Inquisitor from uh, Eddie's website, and that site also includes a link to watch the film online for anyone who hasn't seen it. So now that you've heard some of the great. behind the scenes info, definitely go check it out. It's uh, yeah. A very intense experience. <laughs> that's that's, that's sure. great. I'm glad that this uh, it has a little, uh, you know, more life than I expected. I'm very I'm very thrilled about that. Uh, the one little quick story I can share with you about how great Marcia is and what a pro she is, is she was very. Um, one difference in the in the film from the short story is that in the short story, she the woman Hazel has a bad eye. And, and, you know, she's blind in one eye, and it's, it's very uh, milky. And Marcia couldn't do that because her doctor wouldn't allow it uh, because she was having problems with her eyesight. She, she was in the early stages of macular degeneration, and she thought she would, it would really hinder her performance if, if I was taking an eye away from her because it was already difficult for her with two. So, uh, so we switched and gave her, um, she had to have some kind of scar, some kind of infirmity that was a, uh, a memento from her marriage to this guy. And so we, we cut off her thumb. <laughs> it's basically what we did, which I thought is in some ways even more horrible than being blind in one eye, you know? Um, and then we did the makeup and the whole bit. And anyway, um, the, the point of this is she also, she also smoked and, she was very, very hesitant about smoking because she had been a smoker, a lifelong smoker, which which she didn't really advertise. You don't, you're not going to find too many photographs of Marsha smoking. 
because I don't think she thought it was a very good habit and she was a little embarrassed by it. And so when I said, you're going to have to smoke, she said, well, you know, we're going to have to figure something out. And, and finally, I, I told her I'd get her these non, uh, you know, nicotine uh, cigarettes, right? Uh, the, these special cigarettes where she wouldn't get addicted again, if that was her concern. And the day we were going to shoot, she, she went back to the hotel and she said, you know, I'm going to take a pack of the normal cigarettes, which were these nasty Pall Malls, you know, and, and uh, a pack of these special cigarettes that you got me. And I'll, I'll see which one we'll use. And the next day she showed up for the, on the set first day and she said Eddie I'm going to smoke the real cigarettes and I I thought like uh oh I've I've done it she's back you know she's picked up the habit again and she says and the reason I'm going to do that is because these other cigarettes burn too fast and and you are going to have terrible continuity problems in your editing if I smoke those cigarettes so so, that, so you know she's thinking like a filmmaker the whole time, and uh, and you know, we had a cigarette wrangler, we, <laughs> Andy Blackwood, who was like kept kept close watch on the length of Mar- uh, you know of Marsha's cigarettes and all this stuff, just so that everything cut match cut properly in the film. But I was always impressed by that. That she said, "I'm going to do you a favor." I mean, she may have been lying because she just wanted to smoke the real cigarettes, but but she didn't go back to smoking. I'm happy to say. Yeah, that's terrific. And that's the the sign of a real pro for sure, yeah, as he you said. And I think as as we mentioned at the beginning, the list of great filmmakers um, that I mentioned your connection with from having directed Marsha, that list also, and of course, many more great directors she worked with, that's just, um, that alone is a tribute to how great her career was and how great an actress she, she is, that she got to work with so many great directors because they all oh, wanted. Oh, abs- yeah, absolutely. And it was funny because while we're making the film, she, she would always bring me up a little short because she would we'd be doing something and then she would make a reference to some, oh, this reminds me of when, and then she would like drop like a name that is like, I can't believe she's saying this, you know, Willie, Willie, you know, and you realize she's talking about William Wyler, you know, or Orson, of course, or, you know, Benny, when she would say, when Benny would come over the house for dinner, and that was Bernard Herman, you know, and, and it's like, holy cow. It's, and it was comical, uh, Haggai, because, you know, a lot of young filmmakers, I don't consider myself a young filmmaker anymore, but when you're a young filmmaker, you, you know, on the set, you're always saying, okay, we're going to do this like Kubrick. Here's my Kubrick shot, you know, and Marsha would do this. And she was referencing people that she had actually knew and worked with. So, <laughs> so that, that made it really special. I, there were many, many times when Jonathan Marlowe, my cameraman, or, or Ian Thomas, my sound guy, when we would kind of look at each other with the, you know, just these expressions on our face like, oh, my God, you know, she actually worked with, with these people. Like, how do, how do I direct her now? You know, Marcia, you're not, I'm not getting what I need here. You know, and it's like, oh, my God. Although I never did say that because that was impossible, you know, she, she knew everything and she did make changes in the script. I will say she, you know, she would say, no, I think this line actually works better if I say this, or why don't we put this ahead of Leah's line and it might have a better effect if she replies this way, you know, she, she was all over it. Masterful. That's really amazing. And, um, coming up later this week, we're going to give next week on Turner Classic Movies on your series Noir Alley. There is going to be a showing of one of her greatest movies. Yes, that's Raw Deal on the I think it's the twenty second of October, uh, which I have to say is just all. It's weird doing that show on TCM. Sometimes, sometimes the scheduling of films is really thought out uh, by Charlie Tabish, the the programming guy, the VP of programming. Like showing the Prowler on Mother's Day, I thought was like genius. That wasn't my doing; that was his doing. And and then like the fact that Raw Deal fell, you know, the week of Marsha's hundredth birthday is just uh, incredible. So um, I, I, I'm really uh, glad that I get to pay tribute to her in the uh, in the outro for that film. And uh, I think the world of Marsha. Yeah, don't miss that. That's going to be a great show for sure. 
Okay, so thanks again, Eddie, for joining us here on this 100th birthday tribute to Marsha Hunt. Thank you so much, Guy. I would, uh, I'm actually have, uh, I will be flying down to, uh, to Los Angeles today to actually be there and help uh, Marsha celebrate this uh, incredible event. She, when we were making that film years ago, she, I said, anything left in life that you really aspire to? She says, well, I'm going to make 100 years old. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> she did because Marsha will do anything she sets her mind to. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm happy we had this chance to, to talk about my favorite person in the world. Thanks. Thanks again to Alan K. Rohde and Eddie Muller for joining us. Our podcast is available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Fillmore Foundation by signing up on their email list at fillmorefoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media at Fillmore Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, you can contact us via email at podcast at fillmorefoundation.org. We'll be back next month with another episode. And until then, thanks for joining us here at North Talk.